0: text for this evening's sermon is the same psalm, Psalm 110, that we just read and sang. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does kingship even mean to us anymore? We've just had the coronation of our King Charles III, and yet it wasn't really a big thing for most people here in Canada. It's kind of distant. It's not that Relevant And really, the kingship doesn't have impact in our daily lives. It doesn't have real power to change our lives. But when we go to the scriptures, and when we look at the concept of kingship that the Word of God puts before us, there is something that is very near to us and real relevant, powerful, it has an impact, it is a matter of life or death, both now and into all eternity. And that's what we've been singing about, and that's how we were welcomed into worship as God gave us his blessed salutation in the name of the one who is ruler of kings on earth, King Jesus. And that's who we're here to celebrate and to worship and praise in a special way this evening because of his ascension to heaven and to the throne. Now, when we look at kingship in the scriptures, we go way back. We begin at the beginning, and we see the the mighty acts of God in creation, those six great acts of creation on those six days which culminate, which end up with the creation of man. God forming man and giving his spirit, breathing his spirit into man for, for life and righteousness and holiness. And There was Adam and there was Eve. They had the kingdom and the power and the glory to rule over the creation as vice regents of God, as king and queen. And they lived in a world of pure love and joy, goodness, and life. And that's where the kingdom begins in Scripture. But the children know what happened next. Just a few chapters in, in chapter 3 already of the Bible, we have the fall and we have the loss of the kingship as Adam and Eve committed high treason. As they tried to dethrone the supreme king of kings, they were themselves dethroned. They were driven out as sinful and shameful rebels. And the story of the world, the story of redemption, the history of all the revelation of God since then is about how God will return us to the kingdom, how God will bring about the return of the king. And as we go through the, the history of God's work in this world since the fall, we see the, the, the restoration of the kingship pictured in the line of David, that great royal house of King David, And yet, as glorious as that house was, it was just a rough sketch. sketch. It was just a, a shadow of the real thing to come. And the Scripture just points us towards and cries out for that son of David, who will come, who will outrank David. And that's what we see here in our text. The Lord, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, and that's Adonai, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the Lord Jesus takes these words of Psalm 110. They're in Matthew chapter 22. He talks to the Pharisees, to the scribes. He says, well, who do you think David's talking about? Who is David referring to? He's referring to his son." But a son is inferior to the father. And yet, David says about this son of his that Yahweh, God, says to my son, and this is what he calls his son, he calls his son, my Lord, my master, my Adonai. Now, Adonai, Lord, in small letters, is the typical scriptural word used to refer to the Messiah to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so right here in Psalm 110, the very beginning of the psalm already, we have one of the many prophecies of the coming King, that the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, His coming will bring about the return of the true King. And just as God brought the world into being with six great acts of creation through the Lord Jesus Christ through the son so God recreates he fixes he redeems the world in six great acts of redemption the conception the birth the suffering and death the resurrection the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sixth place the pouring out of his spirit and that will we'll be looking at shortly in the future when we remember Ascension Day, uh, Pentecost Pentecost Sunday. And so we're dealing tonight with that fifth great mighty act of redemption, the redemptive acts of God in history, the ascension of Christ Jesus our Lord, in which man was restored to his place in the universe, in which a sinless, holy, undefiled, perfect, righteous man came to the very gates of heaven. And as Elder Kevin mentioned at the beginning of the service, the gates were no longer barred. He was in no way driven driven out, but those gates lifted up their heads and they cried out, glory, as the king of glory was welcomed into the presence of God. This was the return of the king. And just as the fall of King Adam had great consequences for every one of us, and don't we feel them still today? Don't we know it, that the fall of King Adam had great consequences for all of us? So, the restoration of kingship in King Jesus has consequences for all of us, which is why we've come to this building in the middle of the week on a Thursday night to celebrate this mighty act of God, Ascension Day. And so we, we see that Christ is exalted at the right hand of the Father in the context of great victory. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And as we move on to verse 2, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. We're reminded of what Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 1 where the Scripture says this, about the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. The Scripture says that Christ, having made payment for sin, He was seated at the right hand of the majesty of, On high. And that is the position of authority. That is the position of the ruler of the universe. And what's the consequence of that? Well, look in verse 2 there. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Now, Zion is the church of God. And so the scripture teaches us that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is made evident and goes forth from the church in this broken, dark world full of rebellion against God and against God's anointed. The church is the royal residence of Emmanuel, God with us. You know, when King Charles is in Buckingham Palace, then the the royal standard flies above it. And when he leaves to go somewhere else, that royal standard is taken down and it flies above whichever castle he happens to be staying in. And so the royal standard of the king of kings, the royal standard of King Jesus, the king of the kingdom of heaven is flying above the royal residence, which is the church in this world. And so that rule, that power of Christ's rule goes forth from Zion, goes forth from the church, but it begins in the hearts of the members of the church. It begins, that rule of Christ begins in my heart. It begins in our marriages. It begins in our family, in our congregation, and in the church Catholic all around the world. It begins with us. As we, in the power of the Spirit of Jesus, we glorify the name. We work to advance the kingdom and to submit more and more to his will. And that power pushes the kingdom forward in a way which is unstoppable. In the midst of his enemies, in the midst of our enemies, no matter how much opposition there is. No matter how many enemies there are. Christ the King rules and so that's what we preach with our words and that's the truth that we live with our lives so that even the unbeliever they can see us they see the way we talk they see the way we think they see the way we live and they can say there is a life that is lived under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ there is a man there is a woman there is a child who says there is not one square inch of human existence over which the Lord Jesus Christ does not say, that is mine, I am sovereign, I am king. And so we move to verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. That's what the world sees, doesn't it? When it looks at the church, offering themselves freely, willingly, cheerfully, enthusiastically, Delighting to hear the call of God, to assemble in his name from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, as we sang just earlier in the service of Psalm 47, that God rules over the nations. Not just the church in one little ethnic group, but over the nations. And the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. There in Psalm 47, way back in in the history of redemption, already the psalmist is prophesying that the church is Catholic, that people from every nation, even the, the greatest and the smallest, will come and be part of the people of God. Why? Because the shields of the earth belong to God. What does that mean? The might, the military power, the dominion. All dominion is God's. All power is God's. All glory is His the kingdom of the king of kings is the kingdom in which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is what moves us as God's people. That's what excites and thrills our hearts more than anything. That Jesus rules. That Jesus is king. And there we are gathered In holy garments, we wear the uniform of the troops of the kingdom of God, not something all flashy with gold braid and fancy brass buttons, but the uniform of the kingdom of God is holiness, the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we have put off the filthy garments of the flesh and the filthy rags of our own self-righteousness, and when we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus the King, people can see it, can't they? People can see it. Just like in the olden days, we don't do it anymore. Nowadays, soldiers fight their battles in Camouflage, and the, there are different types of camouflage for different types of armies, but they're, they're also quite similar. But in the olden days, the, you could tell real quick who were the red coats and who were the blue coats. You could tell which army was which. And so it is with the Church of God. You can tell who is clothed in holy garments. You can see it from a mile off. There goes a soldier in the army of Christ. And so from the womb of the morning, the Jew of your youth will be yours. This, this language of womb of the morning, the Jew of your youth, this speaks of abundance. It speaks of exuberance and, and being full of life and energy as the, the, the womb of the morning is the beginning of the day as the, as the light displaces the darkness. And the, the Jew is, is that time of the day in Israel when you have that precious moisture settling on the ground and turning the desert into a garden, making the desert bloom, bringing life and restoration and refreshment. And that's the way it is in the army of the kingdom of God. It is an army not of a few old people still hanging on to some old-fashioned notions and practices, but it is an army with little children loudly singing the praises of Jesus, loudly singing the confession of the faith. It is an army of young people growing up and taking the armor of God and standing firm in the great battle of the kingdoms of light and darkness. It is an army in which young people come to that day when they stand up before God and the church and the world And they swear an oath in the presence of heaven and earth. I am a soldier of the cross. And I give my life unreservedly in the service of the kingdom of God. And then verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this king that we serve? Well, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His throne is an everlasting throne. It is established by oath, the oath of God. It cannot be shaken. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. There was none before Melchizedek and none after. He's in his own category. And so King Jesus, the king of righteousness, is also the king of Salem, the king of peace. And he's not like the priests of Israel, because he's a a priest king. He's not like the priests of Israel. They, They minister and they die. They minister and they die. But this is an everlasting king and an everlasting priest. He is ruler and reconciler. He is the king who brings us the victory over sin. And he is the priest who mediates between us and God, who assures us that all is well between us, sinners, and a holy God who tells us that God loves us, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as Melchizedek celebrated the salvation of God by bringing out bread and wine, so Jesus sets the table before us with bread and wine and our cup overflows and we taste now a small foretaste of that great victory banquet in the kingdom of heaven, where our Prince of Peace himself will drink the wine new with us and will serve us at table. This is our Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, And of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the gospel of the great king. It is an offer of amnesty. It is an offer of restoration, kingdom, life, peace, righteousness, joy and love, that's the kingdom that he is bringing about. That's the kingdom that he is restoring. And if that kingdom of righteousness and of peace will come about, it means that everything that is opposed must be destroyed. Everything that is not righteousness must be destroyed. Everything that is not peace must cease to exist. And so we see there in the last verses of our text, verses 5 and 6 especially, that our king did not ascend to heaven's throne to sit around and, and wait. But he is doing something. He is a warrior king if you turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 19, and you might want to keep your finger there because we're going to go back to Revelation 21 at the end, but Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through to 16, here is our exalted and ascended Lord King Jesus, Revelation 16, uh, sorry, 19 verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse is the picture of our ascended, exalted, and ruling Lord Jesus. He is at war. He sits at God's right hand until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And he's not waiting around for that. He's making it happen. See in there in verse 7? He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. He is not lounging around far behind the front lines in his pavilion with all the comforts, drinking from a golden goblet. No, he is in the field. He's on campaign. He's in the thick of battle. There's no time for a table, not even a cup, but he stoops down and drinks from his hands like any of the soldiers because he's at war because he has enemies to destroy, and he has a kingdom to bring about and to restore. And as we battle the forces of darkness of our flesh and our old nature, we can say with the apostle, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we deal with the brokenness of sin and pain in our bodies, in our minds, in our souls, in our relationships, in our families, in our communities. We can say together with Scripture, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And as we look around at these fearsome, great, malevolent forces of evil, that have come upon this world and come upon our land, these powers that celebrate and promote death and perversity and destruction and everything unholy, then we can say together with the psalmist, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Those are important words. In vain they plot. And we know why it's in vain, don't we? Because he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He speaks to them in his wrath. He terrifies them in his fury. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's why we're not the ones that need to be terrified, brothers and sisters. They need to be terrified because Jesus reigns. And we can rejoice that the Lord is king and that he will shatter them. He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And there will be nothing left. Every enemy will be destroyed. Everything which tries to destroy your happiness in the Lord, everything which tries to destroy your mind, your heart, your soul, your body, your life, your relationships, everything Will be destroyed. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then what? Well, then. The strife is over, and the battle won, and we can hardly imagine that, can we? Because all of our life, we've been living in the battle. All of our life, we've been assailed and hard-pressed by all the enemies. And we can hardly imagine what it would be like when they're gone. When the battle is won, and the kingdom has come. Well, let's have a look at what the Bible says about that. Revelation chapter 21, if you've still got your finger there, Revelation 21, and we'll read the first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. away. This is the end of the story. Well, it's the end of the story, the part of the story which has all the evil that we're battling. It's the end of that part of the story, but it's the beginning of the last chapter. And you know that the last chapter never ends. It just gets better And better and better into all eternity. And so, child of God, this is what King Jesus ascended to bring to you. So, listen to him. This is what he says I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so we can sing. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Rejoice, the kingdom is advancing. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Again I say, rejoice, rejoice. Amen.